0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 9, we're going to read through 25. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace." So that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the dreadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. You see, this scripture is talking about the interesting fact that Paul um, keeps coming back to the issue of circumcision here, and I think he does this for a, a few good reasons that we may not even realize. First of all, he knew that those who believed that were saved because they were trusting in the circumcision were actually lost, and he he wanted to do everything he could to help them get their eyes off themselves. And their good deeds, and unto Jesus who died to save them, not only from their sins, but also from trusting in their good works. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The second thing you need to notice is he also saw the danger of such false teaching. Because if the Jews believed they were saved by the circumcision, then the Gentiles might also follow. And lead and trust in the same or other forms of um, religious activity to save them like church membership or baptism or, you know, even uh, the Lord's Supper. These were not things that made them saved. But by believing that and following those decisions of their own, it led them to believe those things. And so God wanted to point it out to them that this was not the way that we are saved. And thirdly, Christianity could face its greatest trial by believers getting their eyes off Jesus and unto works to save them. There have always been false teachers either with cults or uh, individuals trying to persuade believers that Jesus Christ was the answer, but you need a little bit more in order to be saved. These people are motivated and many are possessed by Satan, and their goal is to discourage anyone from evangelism and even get, bring everyone back into the world. The thing is, is that they've been very successful. They have been very successful. We are seeing evangelical churches that haven't reached a soul in years, and even though some of them are growing, It's because they're swallowing up smaller churches who can no longer make it. And then there are churches and pastors who have simply drifted away from the word of God. Jesus warned this in Matthew 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They might look like the real thing, and they might talk like the real thing, but their goal is to destroy everything about our spiritual life and take whatever it is that you have. Listen, counterfeit Christians can teach, they can preach, they can profess faith, they can even do miracles, and they can perform good works according to Jesus in Matthew 7. The counterfeit Christian claims to be preaching Jesus, but he's actually preaching a Jesus who will save you but only allow you to be Lord of your own life. The counterfeit thinks you can be justified without being sanctified or cleansed from sin without being purified. In other words, the counterfeit preaches to you that you can turn to the Lord without turning away from your sin. The counterfeits gospel is a message of an easygoing salvation where all you have to do is say a little prayer and you'll be saved forever. That is the thinking of this world today. We can give everything lip service, but you don't really need to follow through with action. And it doesn't matter if you go to church, but if you read your Bible or you end up spending your life in alcoholism, it's okay because you've said that prayer. It's okay because I say it's okay or someone else says you're okay. But the reality is, is we're not okay. And God is warning us here. He's saying that we need to focus our eyes on Jesus because that is the only way In which we are saved So people need to wake up and realize that no matter what we do no matter what we say It's not good enough It's not good enough But through through christ jesus We have everything that we need He makes us righteous. No one else can make us righteous. Jesus is the only one that makes us righteous I was um visiting one time several years back with Pastor. And uh, we, we came to this house, and uh, they had been on the membership roll for quite some time, and none of them had attended for many years. And they weren't exactly happy to see Pastor, but um, after a few minutes, he got them talking about the things of the Lord, and, and the mother, she began talking, and um, she started talking about her son, Saying that um, he was an alcoholic who never did anything for anybody, but he was saved when he was eight years old. And Pastor, after we had left or whatever, he began talking with me and he says, You know, I remember uh, when he was six years old and he accepted Jesus at a summer camp and um, says he knows he'll go to heaven when he dies. This is where we get in trouble Is that the counterfeit gospel is Deadly and it's so so very common the, the false teacher says all you have to do Is enough good works and you'll get into heaven and Do you know what the problem with that line of thinking is? First they'll know if they've done enough Until they're standing in the presence of god How do we know we've done enough? How do we know that we're righteous in God's eyes? How do we know that everything that has led up to our life and our death and our appearing before God that what we did was good enough? How do we know? The thing is is we don't know. We don't know. And false teachers will tell you that if you do enough good works, you do enough good deeds, you show up to church. You read your Bible every so often. You're in prayer. Is that enough? But that's the question they were asking here. What is good enough? But I think we also need to consider Paul's life here and how he, he may have been looking back on his own life and thinking about everything he trusted in, such as religion, his heritage, his Uh, family connections and all of his good works and now he could see all of his efforts are being completely worthless they were completely worthless as compared to him knowing christ so the first point i want to make this morning is how do we get saved how do we get saved in verses 11 and 12, it says of Abraham, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Paul uses an unusual clause here in verse 11. Uh, He's talking about salvation, and he says that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Now, you see, the word imputed here also means to attribute or to uh, ascribe to someone. It, it's it's setting something to someone's account or uh, uh, reckoning something to someone else. Genesis fifteen sixteen says God reckoned righteousness to believing Abraham, which means He credited to Abraham account that which He did not have in Himself. In other words, everything that He did, everything that He said, was worthless unless He knew. Jesus Christ. He knew God. Everything that we do is in vain unless we know God, and we have that right relationship with him. In spite of who we were, we are a new creation. Now, some of you are very familiar with the, the, the writer Max Lucado, and he said this. He goes, God is crazy about you. God is crazy about you. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If God had a wallet, your picture would be in it. Whenever you talk, he listens, and, he, and even though you might go days or weeks or months or even years without thinking of him, there's never a moment when he's not thinking about you. Never a moment that he's never not thinking about you. So Jesus's righteousness has been put on our account, and not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. He loves us, and I and I think that the story. I I think of the story of Orphan Annie. Are you familiar with the story? In the beginning of the story, she was all alone. And she's dressed in rags and caged in a filthy old orphanage that was run by a drunk. But then she was adopted by an extremely wealthy man who took care of all of her needs and all of her wants. We know the story. Happy-go-lucky, you know. But there's a very, very common theme that we see here that can be applied even to our own lives here. And I know it's just a story, but... It conveys the same idea of our adoption into the family of God. Uh, We had nothing to begin with. And there's no reason that we were chosen. But we were accepted into God's family. We have all been accepted into God's family. Now we look forward to all the riches of eternity. Pretty good deal, right? So, again, I'm going to go back to the question... How do we get saved? How do we get saved? It is very simply this. It is by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our goal. That is God's goal for us. We need to know him. We need to have a relationship with him. And then second, we need to go into what is the means of our salvation? What is the means of our salvation? In verse 16, it says, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. We are saved by faith and our faith in Jesus Christ and his finished works, and there's certainly nothing that we could have ever done. It is only by the grace of God that we are saved. We are saved by faith. The Old Testament, saints like Abraham look forward to God's provision of salvation while we look backward and we can kind of see how he did it. Now, both of us have this in common. We're looking through the eyes of faith the problem is is that we've had so many people with so many forms of expression or belief and they think that they've done enough to satisfy god's holiness but that's where we're mistaken we could never satisfy god's holiness we could never reach that that's why he sent christ to die on the cross so that we could achieve that, that God could choose us and God could show his love for us. Now Jesus illustrates this so well in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exhausted. Exalted. exalted. Here we have two people who are at the extreme ends of the spectrum here. First, there is the Pharisee who was not only well-known for his religion, but as he says, he fasted twice a week and gave away 10% of everything that he had. People would see him and say, well, now that's somebody who really walks the walk and talks the talk. But he, he was really there to put on a show. There was no g- genuine faith there. He was going through the motions. He was participating in the activities that were uh, for the public to see. And the fact was, he hated everyone who wasn't like him. So he wasn't exhibiting characteristics of Christ. He was more concerned about himself, the, the appearance of everything, of how what I, what he did, how it looked to everyone else. But to the The individual who meant the most and that was God he was full of himself notice in verse 11 and 12 that the word I occurs five times in just two sentences he is self-righteous self-centered self-exalting and self-congratulating if his arm was long enough he'd spend all his time patting himself on the back And his problem was his religion had made him feel so superior that he wouldn't even associate with someone like the tax collector for fear of contamination of what he looked like. He was afraid his sinfulness might somehow rub off onto his own holiness. We know of individuals like this. We know of people who Uh, Claim to be one thing, but then exhibit behavior that is contrary to that belief. And here we see the tax collector in and out of the way of the corner all by himself because he didn't feel as even though, he didn't feel he was good enough to even step forth into the temple to pray. He was a humble man. And his prayer was hardly even a prayer, but all he said was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What an example that would be for us. We need to be that humble man or woman in that corner and just saying, God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I don't have all the answers, I don't have much to give. But what you see is what you get, and it's yours. So we have one guy who was so obsessed with how good he was and he was obviously waiting for some kind of reward while the other was so convicted of his sin that he was beating himself up over it, crying out for the mercy of God because he knew he didn't deserve anything that he had. He knew that God gave everything to him. And he expressed that through his words. God, here I am. And that's what we need to do. That's how we're saved, by faith. It was the faith of the tax collector that communicated to God that led to his repentance. Why? Why? Because he was saved by faith and it has always been faith because faith alone saves everyone and anyone. Period. That's it. Listen to what it says in verse 9 again. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus was speaking to those who were trusting in themselves and their religion, just puffing up their egos, so to speak. And it made them feel as though they were above those who were really saved. Those who exalt themselves will end up being humbled. Know that. Those who exalt themselves will end up being humbled. While those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, we are saved not by what we do, but by the repenting of who we are because we are all sinners in need of salvation. That's the bottom line. At the very root of the modern liberal movement and the loss of the consciousness of sin, that is what we live in today. We're so consumed with sin that it doesn't even look like sin anymore for some, it's the norm. But it is our job, those who are saved by faith, that have been given grace by God, it is our responsibility to inform those that they're deeply, deeply troubled and that they need, they need God. They need Him desperately. And that is the third goal we have. Because that is the goal of our salvation. Look at verses 23 through 25. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Paul says that this salvation that belonged to Abraham also belongs to us. If, if, and that's a big if, if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who was delivered up because of our offenses and was re- and was raised because of our justification. We are saved by faith and heading for heaven for the rest of eternity, but it's not, it's got nothing to do with with how good we've been, or how faithful we are, but because of what Jesus suffered for you and I. That's the reason. Not anything that we could do. Not anything that anyone could do for us, except for Jesus Christ. One of the most striking things about the four accounts of Jesus' death in the Gospels is the absence of sensationalism. There were no death-defying acts of heroism. There were no great speeches to challenge or teach us. There were no moderators that stood off to the side and described in vivid detail every little thing that happened. It wasn't like ESPN where they're giving a play-by-play of the things that were going on. It wasn't sensationalized. And there wasn't even any kind of a demonstration from heaven that demonstrated the horror of God the Father at the death of His Son. All that's here is the simple story of three men being crucified and the one in the center is the Son of God. I think the physical suffering of Jesus was probably the worst kind of torture that any man has ever devised. And I don't want to minimize his agony any more than I want to just simply amplify what the writers were silent about. And at the same time, the four Gospels account and make us wonder, why isn't there more emphasis on the physical torture and the horrendous abuse he went through. Why is that? Why weren't we told more about that? I think that we can assume that Jesus' physical torture was so extreme because he had been beaten and tortured by the soldiers so bad that he collapsed on his way to Calvary. And Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry his cross. So the first question that comes to mind is, why didn't John or any of the other gospel writers tell us more about the specifics of what happened while Jesus was put to death for your sins and mine? It's a question that I ask. Why isn't there more detail? And I know we have many questions about things that happen in our life. Why does this have to happen? Why does God throw opportunities our way, and sometimes we walk through them and sometimes we don't. We all know it's in God's plan. But God also said that we are to question why. It's okay to ask why. We need to seek His counsel. But I would suggest that there's three reasons as to why They were silent on this issue. And the first is that the physical sufferings of Jesus were just a very small part of the things that he endured. Just a small part. After all, the physical pain was what men were able to impose upon him. But I think the greater suffering he had to endure was that spiritual agony that took place when he took that sin upon himself and of the world especially since he was pure and he was sinless just imagine the weight of that of what he had to go through and yet the scripture tells us that Jesus took our place in order to save us from everything we've consciously or even unconsciously have done to offend God. We were talking about this last night, about how can God be so patient with a world that is sinless, or I'm sorry, sinful, so sinful, men so sinful. But then I remembered... I have to look at myself too. Why is God so patient with me even though I am sinful? And that's my answer. It's because he's a loving God and he knows what he's doing despite my own, <laughs> my own self getting in the way of that sometimes. Knowing that God's going to take care of this and he has a plan just like he does for you. I don't have to suffer because he suffered for me. but my life is a gift to him in that process. What we do as Christians, what we say, what we act upon, what we read, the friendships that we have, the relationships that we have, we are only saved through our faith. It sounds easy, but it's not easy. it's, It's a very, very difficult thing for us to go through and to follow through on a consistent basis. But God is right there. He's right there with us. He's taking care of all those things that we don't even foresee. And that's what he's saying here. He is warning us we need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. We need to experience that relationship with God. We need to understand that compared to anything else that we go through in this life, pales in comparison to that relationship, just like Paul. Everything he did, everything he said, his whole ministry was considered worthless compared to the relationship that he had with God. So comparing his spiritual suffering, his physical suffering, would have been minuscule in comparison. There are many who assume that the three hours of darkness during the crucifixion was God's way of turning out the lights so we wouldn't be able to see what Jesus was doing or going through don't turn out your lights. We need to see what's going on. We need to be made aware of where we fall short. God knows it. And we know that God knows it. But do you know it? Do you know it in your heart? Do you know that everything that we do and say is meaningless unless we have the love of God with us? The second reason we're not told more is because there's no way that you or I could possibly comprehend or understand even a little bit of God's wrath. We have no clue. Many of us have tried to imagine what heaven would be like, and yet, no matter how hard we try or how far we let our imaginations run... It's fall, it falls short of grasping anything to the glory or the beauty of heaven. It's just impossible. First Corinthians 2:9 says, "But as it is written, "I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him." Listen, heaven is so wonderful, and it, it's simply beyond our comprehension. So how could any of us understand anything that resembles the horrors of hell? Did you know that Jesus spoke about hell more than he did about heaven? And yet there's many people who say there's no such thing as hell. That either Jesus was telling the truth about hell or we can't believe him about heaven either. There are people that will call Jesus a hypocrite. And they will come after us as Christians. But understand this. They're not coming after us. They're coming after Jesus. They're coming after Jesus. They're not coming after us. So we need to have that mindset, knowing, just like Paul did, no matter what the situation is, whatever God throws our way, we can handle it. Even if God even came to you and said, you know what? no matter what you do or say, it's going to fall on deaf ears. You're not going to make any progress with this person or this group or organization. But I want you to go anyway. And I want you to be the light that I will shine through you. And that's what God wants with all of us. He doesn't need some fancy person or or celebrity to deliver what he needs to deliver. Most of the time, God uses the smallest of things. And it delivers a big impact. Listen, hell is real. Hell is real. And it's going to be filled with people who have ignored God's invitation to enjoy heaven. You know what the worst part of that, though, is? is that you can only ignore the invitation for so long and then you become totally oblivious to the message. You see, we block things out all the time. We block out things that aggravate us. We block out things that annoy us and even things that scare us. And we, we can do the same with God. We can ignore Him so long that we don't even seem to hear Him anymore. We don't like to think about it, but there is a place called hell, and hell is one of those subjects that we all feel a little uncomfortable with. And I think we should. I think we should feel uncomfortable about it. But the Word of God tells us that hell is real, it's awful, it's eternal, and it's crowded. It's crowded. One writer said, hell will have such severe degrees that a sinner, where he able would give the whole world if his sins could be one less. But listen, the good news is is that no one has to go there unless they choose to. They have to choose to go. And everyone, and I mean everyone, has a choice. I've heard preachers say that the phrases used to describe hell were not meant to be taken literally, but they were symbolic and mysterious and meant to demonstrate all uh, we're missing if we don't go to heaven. That's kind of absurd if you think about it because Jesus said it was awful, so I'd rather just take his word for it. I don't need to hear from anyone else. I know because Jesus has expressly told us what it's like. So I'll take his word. No matter how you approach the subject, hell is an awful thought. It is a place of eternal torment and constant pain and unquenchable flames. Hell is a place of terrible memories and horrible thirst. Hell is a place of eternal separation from everything of beauty that resides in this world. Hell is a place of eternal separation from the presence of God. Hell is also a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, but all those who reject the Lord as their Savior will go there as well. You can only think of one thing worse than going to hell, and that would be to go there while knowing you rejected heaven. But does that really happen? There were several in the New Testament who rejected the good news of salvation, Judas Iscariot had not only walked with Jesus for three years during which he had heard all of his teachings and saw and maybe even performed some miracles but in the end he died and he went to hell. He died and went to hell. Felix the governor heard Paul preach but said he wanted to wait for a more convenient time. Sound familiar? I've got plenty of time. I'm going to live my life, and then when it comes time, then I'll I'll come to Christ. Same thing. Herod Agrippa had admired Paul's preaching, and he almost seemed to step right up to the door of heaven, but then he turned away. And then there was Festus who heard Paul's testimony and referred to it as the the ravings of a madman. It's funny, but you can wash a pig. You can spray perfume on him and put a ribbon around his neck and he can look clean. But as soon as you turn him loose, he's going to head straight for that mud hole because he's a pig and that's what pigs do. You can take a corpse and comb its hair, put makeup on them, clean them up. It might look good for a while, but eventually it will rot and decay. Why? Why? It's dead and that's what corpses do. In the same way a sinner may come to church and even turn over a new leaf and look like a new believer. He may be a moral, clean, hardworking person but he's still a sinner at heart who needs a savior in order to be saved. Hell is one of the most talked about subjects in the Bible. While it's only mentioned a few times in the Old Testament, it is a major topic of conversation in the New Testament. All four Gospels, letters of Paul, Peter, James, John, and the book of Revelation all talk about eternal judgment. Do you know who talks about hell more than anyone, though? It's Jesus. Jesus. He spoke about heaven 17 times, but he spoke about hell 71 times. So the physical suffering Jesus endured was minimal compared to his spiritual suffering. And the reason we're not told more, it is because there is no way you and I could ever comprehend it. Just like any other question that we have when we go to the Bible and we read the stories, well, how come we don't know the end of the story? How come we don't know this? How come we don't know that? It's because God intended for us not to know. That's where faith comes in. We rely upon our faith, not our facts, not our stories, but by the (laughs) saving grace of God. That's what we rely upon. We take everything His word for it, not a pastor, not a preacher, not a teacher, not a friend, mother, father. We get it from his mouth. We get it from his word. That's what makes it true. There's one choice we all get to make, and that's the choice whether we're going to spend eternity, and we make the choice when we decide to commit ourselves to follow Christ. But know this, it is really easy to lose a vision. It is very easy to lose that vision. So stay within the walk. Surround yourself with others who encourage you, who are there with you going through the same things you are. And don't be afraid to be human With someone. We're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But we also have the choice to correct those mistakes. And we have one who's already paid for those mistakes. A long time ago, when I was in high school, I'd been staying with a friend, and on Sunday, uh, he invited me to go to his church. And I said, sure. And this was kind of a large church and it had about three to 400 people. And the building was full and we were a little late and all the seats were occupied. So we walked right down to the front and sat in the very first row. I just assumed it was the normal thing to do. And the preacher himself was very good. I loved the message. But I noticed he was preaching about hell and he kept looking at me. And in the end, he gave an invitation, but nobody moved. And I guess um, it was a good thing because I was quite willing to kind of help counsel somebody if they were to come up. Even though this was not my church, um, I was heavily involved uh, with our church group at that time and uh, just kind of felt compelled to be there and Uh, see what happened, you know, and um, like I said, I was willing to counsel, and when the service was over, over, the pastor came down, and he spoke to us, and I told him how I had been saved, and um, I had a good time in his fellowship. Years later, obviously, we're here today. um, I've been preaching now for four plus years with you, and we noticed a long, it was a towards the beginning so it was back in 2014 i noticed somebody come in who wasn't a part of this church he came in and sat down he had very long hair he was very disheveled and i found myself looking at him while i was preaching and i kind of thought maybe this is the same thing that happened to me way back when so anyways i noticed him and he sat in the back row and i asked myself i wonder what he wants i wonder what he wants And then I realized that I had become the very thing that we hate in others. I was being a self-righteous Christian. We need to step away from that and understand that it is not our job to wonder what people want. It's what God wants. That's our focus. It's what God wants. A quick story for you and we'll close. There was a British painter and engraver by the name of William Hogarth, who was once commissioned to paint the portrait of an exceptionally ugly nobleman. As was his custom, he painted this man with a sense of honesty and realism. When the nobleman saw the portrait, he refused to pay for it, and a bitter discussion ensued. Eventually, Hogarth, needing the money, sent a letter to this man and told him that a certain publisher who specialized in exhibiting freaks and monstrosities was interested in the portrait. Unless Hogarth received payment within three days, he said he would elaborate the picture with a tail and a few other monstrosities and sell it to the publisher for the exhibition. The nobleman paid up, and then he burned the portrait, proving that his ego was much more important than his money he was living his life for the pleasure of others and ultimately for himself so the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is who are you living for who are you living for God or for yourself David come and lead us in a time of benediction please he is Lord He is Lord And he has risen from the dead Yes he is Heavenly Father, thank you for our time here this morning. Please, please keep our eyes and ears open to the opportunities that you will bestow upon us, Lord, that we might be that light, that we might show others your love, and that they would come to know you and to have a right relationship with you so that one day when we appear before you, we can he can say, It has been good, good and faithful servant. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come to a place where we can freely serve you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at WintonChurch.com. O-R-G